Father. Thank you for how you prove yourself over and over. Constantly in my own life, ebbing and flowing, struggling with my own problems, my own inner problems and struggles and failures, along with my brothers and sisters. In a world that too often seems like it's falling apart, you're in the midst of us helping us. I pray that you would strengthen our hearts this morning, help us to see our great need for you and our great access that we have to you and to your power in prayer. God, I pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's always good seeing you, brothers and sisters. Every time I get to stand up here, I look and I, I see you. I see your eyes. And, and, and honestly, you can see from up here better than you think, right? Uh, my wife is always getting mad at me because I'm like, stop laughing or like this because you can see every single movement. So as everyone's like, oh, I say that to be funny, not to get you nervous. I can see you. And God can see you. And this morning, we're going to open his word. We're going, to, we're going to take a half hour, however long it takes. We're going to go through his word. And we're going to see what God is teaching us about prayer. Now, we've been in this, we've been in this series called Blueprint, the Summit Design Plan. And we're trying to, our goal is to show clearly what scripture says a church should be. We've introduced the series, we've talked about humility, we've talked about the foundation, Jesus, the word of God, and we now are starting to talk about these pillars that we keep displaying before your eyes, that they're out there in our hallway, that you see them every time you come in. What in the world are these pillars? Well, first, here's what those aren't doing. Those aren't necessarily a, and I said this last week, they're not necessarily an advertisement about who we are. It's not like, hey, if you're coming here, here's what you're going to find. I hope you would see that among God's people. These pillars are a reminder of what should be emanating and building in the heart of an individual's life that is standing on the word of God. And and, and these characteristics bubble up into the person, the genuine person who is living their life in relationship with Jesus and by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that these are the characteristics that are going to appear naturally as a result of being surrendered to him and walking in him. And guess what is the product of those characteristics in someone's life? The product being the mission of the church being accomplished in that God wants the whole world to know that Jesus has died on the cross and all who call upon him may be saved. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. We have to first be disciples and now we have that mission. If that mission is simply a command, if it's simply just a command to go, but the individual that's going doesn't have the foundation under their feet solidly solidly emanating these things, we believe the mission gets hindered. So just as much effort and focus needs to be put into the genuine growth of the individual, all of us. This isn't 
This isn't just for the church. It's for all of us, not just for the leadership, not just what you see on stage, all of us. And we want to make a big deal about it. What did we talk about last week? Authentic worship. It was the first one because the theme of scripture is who are you going to worship? You're going to worship God who created you and who your soul was meant to bow down and worship or are we going to worship something else? And there's a plethora of things to worship from things to people to ourselves, to ideas, to philosophies. We reiterated or made clear last week that worship is just not simply a service or music, but worship is the disposition of the person, that their heart is bowed down, that they see God as more worthy than anything else and they're giving everything to him. So when we sing, we ask ourselves this question, when we sing, are we worshiping as we're singing? Because it's possible to sing and not worship. And this morning I felt the worship of God with my brothers and sisters as we were singing. Today, we're gonna move to our second pillar, which is fervent prayer. And this flows right out of worship. Fervent prayer is our second pillar. And it goes along with worship. Actually, one of the, I think, most immediate expressions of worship is prayer. It's actually hard to pray without bowing down. Because prayer is expressing and should express who you are dependent on. So last week would be as we're standing on the word of God, I'm, I'm seeing the worth of God. And as I'm standing on the word of God now, today, I'm seeing my need for him. And fervent prayer is what that is all about. So let's look at this word prayer. You, I, I've got it up on the screen. I'm going to show you just a basic understanding. We have our theme verse Uh, from Colossians chapter four, verse two, that says, continue steadfastly in prayer, watching the same with thanksgiving. And I'm gonna give you a few more verses here as we go along that kind of reiterate this consistency in prayer. But let's let's look at the word prayer. Prosukamai, that's just from the Greek. It's very interesting because the word worship had the word pros in it as well. So worship and prayer both have this first part of the word that has this word that means toward or forward Two, worship, proskuneo, was pros, forward or toward God in what? In in bowing down toward God. Prayer is pros, toward God in what? Ukamai, which means to wish for, to desire, to pray, to will. If you look through scripture, you'll find many other words for worship. And so what I did here at the bottom, you'll see, is these are kind of the other interpretations or other words that are used both through the Old Testament and New Testament. And I try to kind of collect them all together of what prayer means and can mean in scripture. It can mean to intercede. That means you're talking to God on behalf of someone else. It can mean actually to praise. Praising can be your worship. It can mean to ask for with pleading. You know what that looks like, right? Please, 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 I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, right? That, that sounds fervent, doesn't it? beseech, ask with urgency, similar to asking with plea, make a petition, implore. You see this, there's this towardness, this to God in something from the worshiper that they're going to God for. And in the case of prayer, we could simply say it is, I'm coming to God to, to ask of him something, or I'm it's talking to God. I'm conversing with God. I, I'm bringing the desires of my heart 
the wants of my heart. I'm coming on behalf of other people to God. Now, what does that show? What, what, what does that imply about the person as we come to God? That, that is saying, God, there's something about you that is able to do something that I can't. And I'm dependent on you for that. Prayer is a great expression of dependency. But if it's just prayer, if it's just the act of talking to God, just like worship, we are prone, we were very prone to the routine and the monotony and the ritual, aren't we? It, there's something about our heart and our flesh that is constantly being pulled away from authenticity. This is why we focus on authentic worship because we want to take a look on the inside. Now we want to focus on fervent prayer because that word fervent has with it fire, burning, intensity, passion, and it's hard to be fake or routine and ritual when our prayer is fervent to God. I mean, imagine being in a desert. Imagine being in a desert and you are, I mean, you are like five minutes away from just perishing. You've had no water, sun's beating down on you and imagine all of a sudden you see and you know you know it's not a mirage like the 30 times you've seen already there's just this oasis and it's just right it's just right over this one little crest and it's like down there and you can get there probably in 30 minutes what type of pursuit towards the access of that thing that will save your life would you have would it be one like oh oh, stretch a little bit You know, oh, here's a lizard. Let's play with this lizard really quick. You know, oh, hey, lizard. Oh, yeah, I'll get over there eventually. I got some, some stars and some clouds I want to kick back and read and look at and interpret. Now, what type of pursuit toward that thing would you have? I mean, you would, you'd, be, you'd actually be scared that you would kill yourself in the process because you're like, I'm already so close to death. If I run too fast, I might die. But you're like, okay, how can I, I got to get there as fast as I can. What do I got to do? Okay, breathe, 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 breathe. Right there. That's what I need. That's what I need. You know, like tunnel vision. Everything else is like out of your vision. Right? You, you get the picture, right? Access. Access to something very powerful, very beautiful. Complete Access. I mean, think about the word access to things, right? A lot of, lot of life experiences, we experience some type of suffering because we don't have access to something. We don't have access to all the money in the world, right? So we, we suffer from what it's like to not have the money. And if you don't have the money, you're not paying your bills, you're not paying. And if you're not good with the access to the money that you have, right, that, that can hurt. Or if you spend it frivolously, we understand that. How about access to food? Access to, to, the, to the world's resources, and then Jesus shows up on the scene and he tells us we have, we have literally, because of what Jesus has been done, we've been given access to God and not partially to his fullness. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace, John tells us. The fullness of God, access, grace being his giving to us of the things that we desperately need. So when we're coming to God in prayer, as Hebrew says, and we're coming boldly to his throne, the veil has been torn in two, access has been granted to God. We can come to him all individually, anywhere, at any time, access for the things that we need. We can come boldly in those moments. 
So when you think about it like that and you think about the great needs we have in life, how are you coming to God in prayer? Is it fervently? Does the fervency show that you genuinely believe that he is powerful and you are dependent on him? Well, this is what we mean by our pillar. So, so what are we going to look at specifically today? As I look through the scripture and I, I, I struggle to see and uh, there's 10 billion things that I could talk about and lead us to. Where, where did I get narrowed down to where, what we should look at today? And, and here's where talking with the staff and thinking through this, praying over it. We want to go to Matthew chapter six. And we want to we learn from our master, from Jesus, how he taught us to pray. And what the, how we should pray, how we shouldn't pray and what are the things that we should be fervently praying for? Matthew chapter 6. Turn there with me, if you would. Jesus has been doing a lot of preaching in this point. And if you look at uh, the book of Luke in this account, the disciples ask, actually asked for Jesus to teach them how to pray. We're going to be looking at Matthew, which is right in the midst of Jesus giving a big, big sermon And prayer is right here in chapter six, kind of right in the middle towards the end of that sermon. Matthew chapter six, we're gonna be starting in verse five and working our way through verse 15. Now, before we dive in it, giving you time to turn there, let's think about this word fervent. And I wanna give you some quick answers to why we might not be fervent in our prayers. Thinking through it, what might be reasons that would keep us from coming to God like he's this oasis that could save our life? And let's see if we can all relate to these. The first one I thought of was this, doubt. Doubt that God actually hears us when we pray or, or doubt that if I come to God for this request, it's gonna go nowhere. I think we can relate to that. Right? So that would impede the fervency of the prayer. How about this? There's no desperation Actually, in life, we're not feeling any sense of dry and weariness. We're not, we're not feeling a sense of discomfort. We're actually very comfortable, and there's nothing in our life that's creating a desperation where we feel like we need to go to God. That is always, church, always an illusion. That is an experience in life that is an illusion, and it is deceitful, and it is never the case. But how often might we be like that? Oh, there's nothing desperate in my life, so I don't desperately need the Lord, so I don't need to fervently seek him in prayer. How about this one? You ever not prayed fervently because you're avoiding the answer? You actually do believe in the power of prayer, but you're actually afraid of what God's going to say because you know he's going to hear you. You know he's going to give the answer, but it's not going to match up what you really want. And so there's this strange, deceitful thing that says in our heart, well, I'm just, I'm not going to pursue God in that because I don't want the answer. Maybe that's, that's one. How about this one? Avoiding responsibility. Right? That thing in the back of the head, when we're praying, it's like that still quiet voice in our prayers that's saying, no, give this to God, confess this, time to give this to us. And we, but we know like deep down in our soul, if I actually bring this to the light, if I give it to God, he's gonna, there's gonna be some responsibility following that, right? And so we avoid praying and bringing it. Simply, how about this? Just laziness, right? 
prayer in our mind doesn't bring instant gratification. And so we, we'd rather spend our days and our energy and our time and our effort trying to figure out our problems and our wants and our needs on our own, in our own instant type of way. And then how about this one? This, uh, this is one I think that Christians can struggle with, fatalism. We just, we believe so powerfully that God is in control that, well, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I pray for anyway. God's just going to do what he wants to do. Anybody relate to that? Anybody relate to that, that, that feeling when I sit down to try to pray and I just feel like God's just going to do what he wants to do anyway. So my prayer is not going to make a difference. Some reasons we may not be fervent in prayer. Now, as we get into Matthew chapter six, Jesus is going to start out with some, some reasons God's not going to hear our prayers, which is the next curiosity I have when I think about our pillar and I think about prayer. What might be the reasons God may not answer or hear us when we pray? Well, we'll get into it. Matthew chapter six, verse five. Here's Jesus speaking. He says this. He says, and when you pray... Right, so we set in the stage. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to the Father who is in secret, and when your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Okay, first things first, church. Anytime we posture ourselves or position ourselves, I'm going to approach God in prayer. I want to see how Jesus taught us to pray. And the first thing I see is this. First things first, we need to check our heart as we approach God in prayer. You're going to see it on the screen. We're going to check our heart. And the first thing is this. We need to ask ourselves something. First thing is I'm checking my heart, ask myself, okay, who is my intended audience right now as I'm praying? Who is my intended audience Jesus, you're teaching me to pray and you're saying there's something that must not be the case when I bow down to pray. First things first, check your heart. Ask yourself this question. Who is my intended audience? And if you're honest with your heart, you'll know who it is. And he gives this scenario. He says this, you must not be like the hypocrites, the word that would be for someone who's wearing a facade, a face. They're not something's, what's being presented is deceitful and not true. And then he gives the example. He says, they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. So these religious leaders or anyone for that matter, who would stand publicly and pray out loud. He says at the street corners, he says, the reason is so that they can be seen by others. Now, now sometimes like we're, we're not God, we're not omniscient. We can't read people's hearts, but sometimes you can get a bad feeling. You're like, I think they're doing that for show, right? But God can always see the heart. He always knows the intents and the purposes of our hearts. And he knows, and he sees it. He's already there. We might as well be honest with it. Check our heart, ask ourselves, who is my intended audience right now as I'm about to pray? And he says, these people, they love to be seen by others. And what does Jesus say that they're going to get as a result of their prayer? He says they're going to get nothing because they're already getting what they want. What they really want is to be seen by others. They already have it. They have their reward. Nothing else is going to be given. That's what they really want. But then Jesus says this. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you pray, 
go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your what? I know some of you are looking at me, but what is that word he says here? Because I want us to focus on this one throughout the rest of the passage. Shut the door and pray to your, what does it say? Father. Shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, now, is this an actual command? Is this like a, is this like, I actually have to find a closet. I have to go into it and sit down. No, he's saying, how can you ensure that your audience is God when you're praying? So you're not tempted to make it about the reception or, or being seen or getting glory from others. He says, if you struggle with that, intentionally get alone. Let me ask you this. Think about your prayer life. Is the only time you pray when it's like routine or when someone asks you to pray? Can you say that your life is filled with intentional times of secret prayer with God? If not, what is that revealing about your heart? Well, it it might be revealing that, that you don't actually see your need for him. And every expression of prayer or every duty of prayer is because either that's what you're supposed to do or because someone's asked you, or maybe even going as far as to saying it's, it's a show. You see, the heart, the genuine heart of someone who has fervent prayer will seek God and they'll do it in secret. Let's get along with our Father and pray who sees in secret. And it says, he who sees in secret, he will, he will reward you because you're coming to him the right way. Second thing we must do before we pray in checking our heart. First, we ask ourselves a question. Then secondly, this, we need to remind ourselves. This one's very important. Remind ourselves, I'm praying to God, not to an idol. I'm praying to God who created everything, Yahweh, not to a pagan, little G God, idol that doesn't actually exist. Okay, where do you get that? Well, let's look what he says here next. He says this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not pray like them. For your what? For your what? Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, pray like this. And he starts out with this, our heavenly what? Father. Okay, Jasper, how do you get, how do you get out of verse seven and eight there to remind yourself that you're praying to God and not to an idol? Well, look what he says here. He says, don't heap up, first thing is, empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentiles being those outside of the family of God, everyone not a Jew. I assume probably all of us, if not most of us, are, would be considered Gentiles, though we know the living God because he's pursued us, which is great news. But basically saying, don't be like others who worship God, think that they're worshiping me, and they think this. They think that they have to con- con- cajole me to hear them. They have to butter me up. They, they, they've they've got to do great repetitious things to get my attention. That's the sign of someone who doesn't believe they're praying to Abba Father. 
That, that, think about God seeing us getting down and like saying empty, vain, repetitious words over and over and over again. In our heart, we're thinking God's going to hear us because of the great fervency of the repetition that I'm putting in. And God's like, oh, I mean, look at it from God's perspective. And you're, I love you. I want an intimate relationship with you. I gave up my only son for you. I know you even better than you know yourself. And I am like waiting and I am available and you have access to me. You come to me and you ask me. And Jesus said that the heavenly father who's not evil is a lot better at giving gifts than us who are evil. And he says, you who are earthly fathers, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Which child asks for bread and you give them a stone or a serpent, right? So imagine what it would be like for God, for him to hear us approach him. And then in our heart, he knows that he knows that we feel like we have to cajole him and like convince him to hear us. And so what do we do? We act like people who don't know him. Like, like those who were in the Old Testament, when they were praying to their God and they wanted to be heard, they'd spend all day repeating words, cutting themselves, saying gibberish and babbling incoherently, thinking that this expression would cause their God to hear them. So now imagine what it's like for God when he sees us approach him like that. Man, I'm your father. Just come to me and ask me. Oh, you, you, you think I'm gonna hear you more because you spend seven hours praying? No, 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 this isn't to discount the persistency that God tells us in scripture which to approach him, but the persistency that he actually likes is for us in our heart when, man, we're hurting and we need him. That's him saying, I'm never annoyed by you and burdened by you when you come to me with your great needs and you're coming over and over and over again. Actually, I want you to persist and to continue in that. We're talking about empty phrases, words, that have no meaning, that have no heart behind it. They're simply repeated over and over and over. I think about the irony of people taking this very prayer that we're about to look at, the Lord's prayer, and they simply just say it over and over or they repeat it after night, but it's never from the heart. It's literally doing what Jesus is saying, don't do. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And the whole time I'm thinking about cheeseburgers, right? But I think like I better say it because if I don't, I'm gonna miss out on something. Like, like God sees that heart. He's, he's wanting there to be a genuine, a genuine thing here. I tell you, there's a lot of expressions of prayer today that would line up more with how pagans would pray than how children would pray to a heavenly father. First, when we come to God for prayer, we check our hearts. We ask ourselves a question, who's my audience? Is it God or is it to be seen by others? And then we remind ourselves, I'm praying to Abba Father, my God who is with me, who already knows my needs before he already knows what I need. I don't have to convince him I need it. And I don't have to cajole him or convince him or butter him up to make him listen to me. Now, there are genuine reasons other than the couple that we've given here of God, why God may not listen to someone Let me give you a few of them. James tells us, one, that we come to God and we ask, but in our heart, we don't actually believe, right? James says, you are a double-minded man. You're not gonna, don't let that person think he's gonna receive anything from the Lord. You're praying and in your heart, you actually believe that either God can't do what he's 
what you're asking him or he won't. Both of those will lead to you not being heard. James also tells us that we ask wrongly, selfishly to spend it on our own desires. You pray or you come and you don't have because you don't ask. So either you don't ask or when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own desires. And then he says this, he says to husbands, God's not going to hear your prayer if you're mistreating your wife. How about that one? Your prayers are hindered if you're living in a misunderstanding way of your wife. God wants you to understand your wife, husbands, and live with them in an understanding way. Proverbs tells us that the wicked, when they make requests, God doesn't hear it. Maybe the only request that the wicked hears is when they're coming to God for forgiveness. God will always hear that for any of us. When we're doing it to be seen by men and when we have meaningless, repetitive prayers. Some reasons God's may, God may not hear. But outside of that, for his children, those whom he loves, he is available, he is God, and he is willing and ready. Let's come to God, get our hearts right. And then here's what I want us to see. We're just gonna kind of move through it. I want us to see what Jesus says, pray like. Then once you've checked your heart, pray fervently for your wants and your needs. Wants and needs. Well, you're like, whoa, interesting, Jasper. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, there's kind, this is kind of some trickery that I'm doing here because Jesus is gonna teach us to pray for what we should be wanting. And he's, going to, he's also going to want us to pray for what our genuine needs are. And so when he gives this prayer to the disciples that we're reading, he gives to all of us, he says this, when you pray, pray like this. Doesn't necessarily mean pray this, pray like this, which means these things that I'm about to say that you're about to hear me, the son of God, Jesus pray, who has perfect communion with the father. These are the things that need to be included in your heart and in your prayer. This is what, what Jesus and God is trying to get his children's hearts to and what they fervently are desiring and what they're asking for help in and what they're dependent on. And what's funny, not funny, but what's interesting is as he prays, he prays in a collective nature. It's a togetherness. Our father, not my father, our father. Because we're in this together and our prayers are together. So he says this, then pray for your wants and for your needs. And so Jesus says this, our father in heaven. The word there is Abba, daddy. That's a great great word that the God who created everything is your father. He's not an idol. Don't approach him like that. You approach him as a child. He says this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are we collectively saying when that is like the first thing in our prayer? We're all saying this together. We're saying, God, we want you to be glorified above all else. This goes back to authentic worship, doesn't it? In your heart, who are you wanting to get the glory? What's, what's of more value and worth? What, are, what is the thing in life that you're trying to glorify? We come to, into prayer always in Jesus wanting to remember that the one who gets all the glory is God. Hallowed be your name. Expression of the individual corporately that God is the most awesome, wonderful person who is to be revered and to be awed. And when I'm praying fervently for what I want, the number one thing in life that I should want is for God to be glorified because that is the number one thing he wants.
Look what he says next. Hallowed be your name. And he says this, your kingdom come. What are we collectively wanting when we pray that? We're saying we want your kingdom to come, God. Let me, let me help us understand kingdom. Think about government. Think about this even, even deeper. Culture. Actually, Jesus is in the midst of, of preaching what the kingdom is like, helping us understand that God's way and his kingdom and the way he would live on earth and the way his kingdom is like is like counterintuitive to all of culture all over the world. God pierces through with light and his way of living and in his kingdom, the way his citizens operate and live their life, their culture is, man, upside down, totally different. Like this, hey, you know what you do with your enemies? people who hate you and want to kill you, you know, there's, there's a way that the world would tell you how you should act, something in your heart, a way that you should respond to your enemies in the world. But in my kingdom, you love your enemies. You pray for them. You don't curse them. You bless them. What? Jesus, this kingdom, this, this is, uh-uh. you were my enemy at once and this is what I did for you. This is how I treated you. Your kingdom come. God, what I want is for my house, for my life, for the culture that I'm impacted by, what I'm conformed to, and what I want to see the world conformed to is your kingdom, your ways. And I want it to start with me and spread to my family and to my friends. And we want to be a church that collectively wants your kingdom to be the priority. Your program, your plan, the way you do life, your kingdom come. Then he says this, your will be done. What are we saying we collectively want when we say that we want God's will to prevail? This goes back to worship. An authentic worshiper is going to say, man, there's a lot of things that I want and a lot of ways that I want life to go, but I believe that God's way is best and he is worthy of getting his way above mine. And so God, we are collectively saying we want your will to prevail and what you want God to be the case in our life. Remember when James talked about, we, we went through this in James, and James says, hey, you who say, come now, you who say, let's go into such and such a city, buy and sell and make a profit. James says, as it is, you speak in your arrogance. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will buy and sell and make such a profit, right? A, a way of living life to where every plan that we have is plan B, and God has plan A. God, is t- God wants us to live our life, enjoy our life, even seek the plans and the desires, the things that we want that, but he wants it to be in accordance with his will. And the heart that really wants God wants more than anything else God's will to be done because it thinks it's best. Well, whatever every plan that they make will say, God, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm seeking, but I know you may not want it. And if you don't, I'm asking for, if you don't, I'm asking for your will to be done. Take over, God. Where are we at in that, right? God gives us plenty of times to test that, right? Because our whole life is us like trying to strive and get ahead to something and God shutting doors, throwing walls up constantly. How are you responding to those moments? Have we just seen it as like, man, I got bad luck, bad luck. Man, God, why are you doing this? Are you looking at it like, God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you see I want this? Don't you see I'm going for this, man? Don't you love me? Don't you care? Right, really what we're expressing is I have, a, I have something that I want and God, I want you to conform to that will. No, no, Jesus is saying the greatest desire, one of the greatest wants of his people is they want his will to prevail. 
because they actually believe that what God has is best, even sometimes when it doesn't make sense or it's not fully seen by us. We trust God with our life, right? This, this has to come from the heart. This has to be genuine. This is what we're fervently praying for. So how are we doing, guys, as we, as we sit here and we read already what Jesus, how Jesus is praying and what Jesus is saying he wants more than anything else, starting his prayer out with us. He's talking to his father. Can we say, yeah, I want that too? Can we at least say, I want to want that? And hopefully there would be none of us that would say, yeah, 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 no, no. At least we'd recognize, man, that's not the number one goal of my life. Man, if I, if I were to make this list and if I were to pray, my wants would it go something like, our father in heaven, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in earth. Because it's definitely like, not like that in heaven. But we never pray that way. But we admit that is constantly the, the arm reaching through the, the, soul, the soul of our heart to take hold of what God rightfully has because he's God and worthy. Always constantly trying to replace what God wants with what we want. And that goes all the way back to the garden. What did the enemy tempt mankind with? You can live autonomously. Life is going to be better if you get your way and you live it your way. And all of, all, all of time has been God pushing out, outside of the garden and letting us experience life our way. What is the result of it? What do we see in the world? Zoom out, take a big picture. What do we see? Divided nation, divided language, violence, evil, can't get along. We see the fingerprints of man doing things the way they want to do it. And it always leads to evil, destruction, death, sickness, calamity, chaos. All of this is the product of us getting our way. But yet we still in our heart think if we could just get it our way, life would be better. No, God is saying, no, I want my will to prevail because it's what's best. It's what's good and righteous. And so those who know him know that. And they kill the flesh. They crucify it daily. And they replace what they want with what God wants. God, our greatest desire is to see you be glorified to see your culture and your kingdom infect us here on earth and to see your will prevail. And he says this, on earth as it is in heaven, a recognition that where God is, things go properly and we're needing heaven to connect with earth. But also the expression Jesus is saying, this isn't something that's like, I'm just, just saying it. I actually want it to happen now, presently in the land of the living, the goodness of God to be seen. And his control. Do we fervently pray for that? How about this? How he's going to shift from praying for what, praying fervently for your greatest wants, what they should be. Now he's going to be go into praying for what our greatest needs are. Look what he says here. He says, "Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts." as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Give us this day our daily bread. God, we are saying collectively that we need your provision. Every single day that we wake up on a daily basis, we all have great needs. Like if we don't get food, we die. 
If we don't get water, we die. If these bodies aren't working the way they're supposed to, we die. Very fragile, weak, fleshly creatures living on a planet who have daily needs. And church, does he provide? Does he provide church? Brothers and sisters, does our God provide? He does. All the way back to the wilderness in Israel when the people were complaining in the wilderness wondering where in the world they wouldn't get any food from and it, it wasn't even available. God made it rain from heaven. And, and, and guess what happens later when you get to it, like the end of chapter six and, verse, and chapter seven, God talks about, hey, don't be anxious for the things you need because God knows what you need and he's gonna provide daily for the food, the clothing and the shelter you need. He's gonna make it happen. He promises that. God, we need your provision. You know, when uh, Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain and God said, I want you to sacrifice your son, which was a test. God would never ask him to sacrifice his son like that, but it was a test. And at the last minute, Abraham showed his faith that he truly believed that God's ways and wills will was best, even when it didn't make sense, even when it meant killing his only son and sacrificing him on the altar. He still trusted God and he obeyed God. He got up in the morning, got the wood and took his son up there, tied him up and literally was about to plunge the knife probably into his neck. And the angel stopped him and said, no, don't do this. For I know now that you fear God, that you believe me because you, you truly want my way and my kingdom and my provision. And how did God provide on the moment there for Abraham? They looked over and there was a ram caught in the thicket and they had a provision of a ram that replaced Abraham's son, but also a beautiful picture out in the Old Testament of what God would ultimately do. Yeah, you see, you see how hard that would be to give up your only child? You see what I asked you to do? Yeah, I'm not asking you to do that, but I am going to do that for you with my only son. And on that mountain... Jehovah Jireh was given the, the expression and the name to God because he is our provider, right? God provides our, all the way down to our little basic daily needs, to our emotional needs, to our mental needs. God is the one who is providing. And God's people say, God, we know we are so dependent on you. There is nothing that we experience or that helps us that is not being filtered through your sovereign provision. And how much it must hurt God to see us turn to worldly means of provision all the time for our spiritual, emotional, mental needs, physical needs, whatever it is, and not thanking him, thanking him at all. All the while putting our trust and our dependency on earthly things. And in our heart, when we pray, we doubt that God can actually do what he says he wants to do. And he's looking down his children and saying, I can provide for you everything you need in every single moment. I can get you have access to me. I can be the one to help you with absolutely everything. And if you get helped by something that seems like a worldly or earthly means, guess what? I allowed that to happen anyway. I get the glory. God, we need your provision, but look what he says next. God, collectively, we're saying we need your pardon Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. This is the big one. This is the big spiritual need. Our pardon spiritually, our big spiritual provision. We have sins that have piled up and they need to be forgiven. And this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus, when he's saying this, he hasn't died on the cross yet. 
So I imagine that this, this, this prayer even comes more to life as Jesus has died and resurrected on the cross and the disciples, the apostles have, have the full mystery of the gospel revealed and now they're taking it to the world and here we are 2,000 years later and it's reached us and this is what we're singing about because we know that Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead and all can be forgiven. Not covered, not dealt with for just totally thrown as far as the east is from the west. That thing that happened last night, that argument with your spouse, that, that fight between you and your siblings, Right, that 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 mental thought of like, man, I just I just want that person to die, like of a hatred that's consuming, or the actual words we say to someone's face, or the things that we do in secret, the things that are constantly tempting us that we're falling into, that we can truly be forgiven constantly, instantly of a grace that is greater than our sin that pours on us like the 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 waves of the ocean constantly, God's grace hitting us, and that every time we say, God, would you please shower me with your mercy and forgive me? God says, Yes, I will, because my son is greater, and he's secured that and he's your advocate and i've written these things to you first john says so that you may not sin but if you do sin you have an advocate with the father the man jesus christ who is there for you interceding on your behalf and so god we say god we need your pardon there's no other there's no other name given under heaven to man by which we must be saved except through jesus christ and we have our pardon being declared innocent as we ask God for forgiveness. But he says this, there's a prerequisite. Look what he says. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Bear with me, we're almost done here. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Because the recognition of forgiveness that we receive from God, God cares so much about it that he wants us to then show that same forgiveness to one another. And when we harbor a grudge or unforgiveness in our heart, what we're saying to God, when I come to you and ask for forgiveness, I want you to hypocritically do for me what I'm refusing to do for my brother or sister around me. And guess what? What my brother or sister or someone on planet earth has done to me pales in comparison to what I've done to you. But I want you to forgive me anyway, even though I'm refusing over here. God's very serious about this so much so that in in verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, others their trespass, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Very serious thing. Remember the parable about the wicked servant who was forgiven a big debt. Then he goes to one of his servants who owes him something small and he chokes him and pushes him up against the wall. When his master heard about what he did, he threw that man in prison and said, you'll never get out and you'll never be able to pay your debt and you'll be thrown in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's people understand that how much they've been forgiven, they're able to forgive all sin that comes against them. We cannot harbor unforgiveness. And so God, we say we need your pardon, understanding that we have to pardon others in life as well. And then finally this, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is where I want you to think about the book of James we went through. As the testing and the temptations of life come, we resist begging and asking God to be our strength to not let us give in to the temptation that we inevitably face is in no way implying that God is the one going to lead us into that. It's the heart that Jesus expressed. And if someone's saying, I need strength from you, God, I need your protection, your strength in my heart to be able to resist the very thing that my heart wants. And if I give into it, it's on me, not on you, God. And so I'm even in need of your protection and your strength to be able to Resist the temptation that comes upon me. Some translations say the evil one or evil, but we know all evil comes from him anyway. 
the great testings and the trials and the evil that comes along in life that's constantly trying to pull our faith and devotion away from God. And so one of the greatest desires of the Christian is a prayer, a fervent prayer, God, keep me, don't let me fall away. Don't let anything else look more attractive to you. Don't let me worship anything else because my heart's constantly prone to wonder. Help me in that, God. That's what this means. God, we need your protection. Guys, there is so much we could talk about in this. So much we can continue to talk about in prayer, but I hope you see, when you see that pillar out there that says fervent prayer, you remember, wow, like I'm praying to God and there are some fervent things that God wants me praying over. And these are the first and foremost wants and desires and everything else that that we can also bring to God must fall into submission to these characteristics and these things that Jesus has said. God, would you mold our heart to match this of Jesus, that you would teach us to pray, that we would come to you fervently. God, that we would ask of you the things that we need and that God, you would help us. Now, let's pray together and then not just be me praying that, okay? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus teaching us how to pray. Help us to obey and work in our hearts a desire for you more than anything else. And God, help us to turn to you for all of our needs, all of our wants. But God, mold that heart to want and to need the right things. I pray this all in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.